is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. One of Hollywood's biggest stars and sex symbols of the 1960s has died, Raquel Welsh. We will go in-depth into her life, her career, and what she meant to Hollywood. Lots of questions and not a lot of answers surround that major train derailment in Ohio near the Pennsylvania border. There were hazardous chemicals on board that were later burned off. But how safe is it really? Tesla and the White House reaching a deal on electric car charging stations that could be a big help to boosting EV infrastructure. A new poll shows a lot of people think the national news media wants to mislead you. We'll go in depth into why more and more people are feeling that way. One writer says Americans need to have more sex. We'll ask her why she's writing about that. How do I know that so many people are going to hang out and wait for that segment? I I just know it. More sex, I'm in. (laughs) We start, though, with the... uh, Incredible life, really, of Raquel Welsh. Jason, Jason Squire is back with us. He's a professor emeritus at the USC School of Cinematic Arts and host of the Movie Business Podcast on Spotify. Jason, thanks for being back with us. Uh, thank you very much, guys. It's good to be with you. So it is impossible, I think, to say Raquel Welsh and not follow it somewhere in that sentence with the words sex symbol. But she was more than that. That's right. Uh, it's a good way of putting it. Uh, Raquel Welsh, I mean, she's rest in peace, really uh, was a reflection of the times. Uh, she really catapulted to fame in the 1960s and had, as you said, a very rich and multifaceted career for decades. But here's the key. Uh, she never took herself too seriously. She acted as if she was always in on the joke, always carried herself with dignity. And not just the movie career, which started out, yes, with sexy roles, um, especially one billion years B.C. Uh, that goes back to 1966. And the, the wonderful reference about that is that her costume in the movie was she was in a deerskin bikini costume. And that image, that photo uh, became a pinup on almost every uh, college campus wall. Uh, during the late 60s. Yeah, she reached a status of icon that few people do reach. And we were thinking about, you know, the the modern equivalents. And now we have such an over-sexualized entertainment culture. And I'm not using that term either in a good way or a bad way. I'm just saying that it is what it is. And, of course, every culture sexualizes entertainment in some way. That's that's what a lot of entertainment is built on. But it just seems... uh, so much more pervasive today, not as pervasive in her time. Was it, or are we just looking back with the uh, rose-colored glasses and, and how she maybe transcended that? Well, you know, it was a more innocent time. Uh, there was no Internet. And, of course, all content, all entertainment is pervasive. Today there are so many more choices on streaming, on uh, sites that include uh, you know, sexual poses. Uh, unfortunately, we have... Uh, kids doing it, you know, in some uh, TikToks and in other um, other applications along the way. And, you know, not to make a judgment about it, but it certainly was a more innocent time. There's one more beat about her career. So we know about the movies. The movies play every now and then. We have access to them. But in the 1980s and 90s, Raquel Welsh pivoted to Broadway, 
Vegas, TV specials, TV movies, always doing talk show appearances. But you have to have serious chops to be on Broadway uh, twice. I did some homework. Uh, 1981, she starred on Broadway in Woman of the Year after Lauren Bacall. And then a few years later, um, in, I think, 97, on Broadway, again, starring on Broadway, in person, in the Broadway musical version of Victor Victoria after Liza Minnelli. Uh, and couple that with a Las Vegas nightclub show, this is, this is a real trooper. This takes a lot of work and a lot of talent. Could could somebody starting out in Hollywood today have that kind of career, especially a woman? You know, anything is possible. Uh, Raquel Welsh herself started out with, with uh, you know, very little. And as she was discovered, there are many more opportunities for discovery today. And uh, the question becomes, how many opportunities are there to really break through on an international, you know, global basis. And uh, I think there still are opportunities for that, but the good news is there are many talents in different sensors of culture who become famous worldwide. Take the stars of Squid Game, right, in Korea. This is, uh, you know, they are known worldwide because of the Netflix success of the series. So success has changed and I think a very healthy way. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Jason Squire, uh, Professor Emeritus at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. Right now, though, people who live in and around East Palestine, Ohio, that's near the Pennsylvania border, have lots of questions about that big train derailment. The train was carrying hazardous chemicals, some of which were burned on purpose to prevent further harm. Now, the feds say things are safe right now, but not everyone is sure that's the case especially with reports of dead fish and animals. Frank Ungaro lives in East Palestine, owns his own business in which he works outdoors. Jim Wise is also with us. He's an attorney whose office is also in East Palestine. Gentlemen, thank you, thank you both for being with us. Good afternoon. Thanks for having us. Uh, Frank, let me start with you. Uh, I mentioned that you have a business uh, in which you work outdoors. Uh, what is the nature of your business and what's the nature of being outdoors now? Well, hey, we run a marine industry where we do outboard motors and stuff, and most of that work is outside. Um, so the last three days, I've actually been outside working. And? Um, I must tell you, in my side of town, I'm not smelling anything. I do have birds tweeting in the trees. So I don't know if where I'm located specifically in East Palestine is okay or not. Um my concern, more than anything, for what it's worth, is when they imploded or exploded the uh, the boxcar and the black cloud consumed East Palestine, some of that went away. Some of that had to have fallen on our roofs, yards, cars, trees, everything. And we haven't had a large rain yet. I do not know if the rain that's coming in the next couple of days will wash that off of the of the trees and the roofs and end up on the ground. Uh, only time will tell, but the experts haven't uh, asked, they have not answered my question yet. Ah, interesting. Uh, Jim Wise, uh, attorney there, 
in the area. Let me ask you, you know, you hear from authorities saying that things are generally safe right now. Uh, do you feel safe? And if not, why not? Well, I think, you know, just like the rest of the community, there, there's, there are concerns uh, with the, the, there's a lot of our residents that have wells. Uh, they're concerned about the any chemicals being, you know, going into the groundwater and then going into their wells. Uh, they they have set up uh, some testing. They they are doing some air testing. My office was air tested, uh, and it, it came out that they're saying there's there's no there's no harm. Uh, I know that right after the incident occurred. Uh, my office itself was closed till Thursday, and uh, my secretary uh, went back to work on Thursday and then ended up leaving after about an hour after feeling like lightheaded and dizzy. Uh, so we shut the office down till this past Monday. Uh, I've, I've been in the office since Monday without seeing any, to my knowledge, no real effects. And like I said, they when they air tested, um, it, it there didn't come out. It, it, they said it's it, it's fine. Or there's they're not detecting anything. But Frank, I'm me, sure that yeah. Go ahead, finish your thought. I, I, I and I think though that the, there is some still some anxiety and concerns over 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 with a lot of the residents, especially ones that that live very close to we'll, we'll say Ground Zero. So, I mean, and I think it is scary for a lot of people, a lot of that have young children or, or have, uh, you know, we I haven't had any conversations with anybody that has lost any animals, although there have been reports uh, of some animals that, that have died as a result of, of uh, this incident. Frank, let me ask you, there's a lot of uh, mistrust nowadays uh, directed toward the federal government. Do you believe the government when it says that things are safe now? Well, sir, I, I have no reason right now at this point to say they're not telling us the truth. Um, I am going to, for what it's worth, I'm going to put a rather large bucket on the bottom side of my uh, my gutters so that if we do get a, a, a rain tonight, I'd like to see what comes off of the roof. At that point, if I see something dark, maybe we need to get out and see the EPA. If it's running clear, I might be uh, more lenient about believing what's from being told. All right. And uh, very quickly, uh, both of you can answer this. Uh, have you heard from any friends, family, relatives uh, who have said they're not feeling well and they think it might be due to this? I, I have not, sir. Uh, I have heard on the news there are a few people not feeling good, but I don't know personally anybody. Jim, I know I know you said somebody from your office uh, went home uh, feeling, I think, what, lightheaded. Is that person okay, though, now? Yeah, yeah, she's, she's, she's fine. So you're an attorney, Jim. Why do I smell, if not bad air, the possibility of litigation here? We've already uh, we've already filed a lawsuit Aha. in the Tropiana County <laughs> okay. Common Police Court. What and what is the in fact? Nature? I, I what, believe there's there's a total of five lawsuits that have been filed. Ours is filed in Common Police Court. A lot of the other, I think, the other four have been filed in federal court, and I believe there's a, another one or two that is going to be filed either today or tomorrow. 
All right. Thank you both for joining us today. Uh, Frank Ingaro works uh, outdoors, and Jim Wise, an attorney office. And uh, we said East Palestine, but uh, they were pronouncing it East Palestine. Right. Yeah. So we want to get the pronunciation of the town right. Yeah. See, I, and see, I, I can smell a lawsuit. Yes, you thousands can. of miles. Away. That is your superpower. Yeah, I can. I can tell. When we come back, the White House puts Tesla in charge, and we will explain. Right now, though, the White House's Tesla has agreed to open up its charging network to non-Tesla electric vehicles. Now, taxpayers are going to pay for the conversion and the construction of new charging stations. Joel Levin's executive director of Plug In America. Thank you so much for joining us. How big of a deal is this? Uh, we think it's a really big deal. Um, we uh, we found that uh, EV drivers in general um, are pretty dissatisfied with the public charging network as it stands right now. Uh, we've done surveys that show that people who use the um, public charging networks, uh, around 25% of them say that broken chargers are a big problem for them, that it makes it really inconvenient to drive long distances. Uh, for Tesla drivers, it's actually really different. Uh, for Tesla drivers, mostly they're very happy with the Tesla network. Only about 4% of them have any problems with uh, broken chargers. And Tesla's really been building out their network and so the fact that they're going to be um, opening it up to non-Tesla drivers, uh, we think is a really um, great uh, advantage for, it'll make it easier to drive an EV, make it more convenient, uh, and in general, uh, make the driving experience a lot more pleasant for people. So we're really excited about it. But is there a, a concern, Joel, that once that network of chargers, uh, the uh, Tesla ones, are opened up to everybody who has an electric vehicle, that perhaps it won't work quite as well? Um, it might make it busier. That's true. Uh, but there's there's also a big public network of, of other um, other chargers as well. And, you know, really, the reason the Tesla is doing this is that they want to have access to that federal money. So in order to uh, get tap into that, they need to make the, the uh, network more um, uh, available to everybody. So they'll, it'll take um, non Tesla drivers. It has to be more publicly accessible. Um, so, 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 wait, I'm, so, I'm not so you too mean, worried about it. So you mean to tell me that Tesla is not doing this to make all of our lives better and happier and richer? Yes, that's shocking. <laughs> well, they're a private company, and obviously they're they're doing what's in their business interest. And but, product um, placement, uh, too, because uh, people are going to be looking right at that Tesla logo. That's right, yeah. But, of course, there's, there's lots of other uh, networks as well, and I think this throws down a challenge to them to make their networks just as reliable as the Tesla network, which is doable, certainly, because Tesla's doing it. And I think it's a model for what is possible with others as well. So we think it's it's great to, to give more options to other EV drivers. Now, I have to admit, I, I, I don't know much about the uh, technology with electric cars in terms of how you have to charge them. But I gather that they're not universally charged by the same kind of charger. Is that it? Each brand requires a, a special thing, special charger? Uh, there's basically two different types of tar chargers that the pretty much universal standard that almost all companies except Tesla use is called CCS. And then Tesla has their own proprietary chargers. So my understanding is what they're going to do is they're going to start having CCS outlets on uh, the Tesla chargers so that other people can use them as well. Now, I, I got a text from a friend of mine who is a Tesla owner, and uh, he uh, says uh, succinctly, uh, public charging networks suck. 
So I, there is that dissatisfaction there, and we're going to see if, if opening up more of them would make it easier for people. But, you know, I've always had the sense that for electric uh, vehicles to really take off, they're going to have to cut down the amount of time it takes to charge a car so that it becomes something very much like pulling into a gas station with your gas-powered car, and you fill up in five minutes or so, and then you go on your way. Uh, could chargers ever get that fast to get a, a, a good or a full charge off of? Well, I mean, in general, we, we totally agree with you that the experience of, of charging an EV needs to become a lot more like the experience of, of gassing up a car. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a big advocate of buying gas, obviously, but the consumer experience of, of buying gasoline uh, is pretty easy. You know, you can go to any gas station in the country, use any credit card. The price is publicly posted. The, the pumps always work. You know, how often is it you go to a gas station and you can't buy gas for some reason? That doesn't really happen. Um, so it needs to be more like that experience. Will it get down to five minutes? I don't know. Um, it's probably, you know, now it's typically more like 20 to 30 minutes to, to charge an EV. Um, it might get lower than that because EVs are, the pumps are getting more, the chargers are getting more powerful and uh, the EVs are, are getting faster in terms of their charging time. So I think it'll go down somewhat. Um, but again, you know, if you're driving along a highway and you, you stop, to buy gas, you know, you might use the bathroom, buy a cup of coffee. So 20 minutes, we don't think is, is that mm. horrible. It's a little bit longer than buying gas. Right. Um, but I think it's going to, it'll probably get down over time, but I don't know if it'll ever get quite to the same of, of the amount of time to buy gas. All right. There you go. Uh, Joel Levin, Executive Director of Plug in America. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, you hear the term fake news a lot. Also, uh, you hear about misinformation and disinformation. And sometimes it's hard to figure out what to believe and what not to believe. And a new Gallup survey finds half of Americans do not trust national news outlets. In fact, they not only don't trust them, they think these outlets intend to mislead them or persuade them to support a certain viewpoint. Jane Hall is a professor in the School of Communication at American University. She's also, by the way, the author of the book, Politics and the Media, Intersections and New Directions. Jane, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you. So uh, that's a pretty, I don't, I don't want to say shocking, because I think we've seen this develop now over many, many years, but it has reached probably an inflection point, I would think, based on this survey, where half of the country thinks that what they're hearing, and, and again, it, it's specific to national news, but they think that, that they're being given deliberately misinformation. Yes, I agree with you that it is an inflection point. I, I will put in a somewhat cautionary um, note that Democrats and Republicans uh, have uh, are more divided. There's still a partisan divide uh, that Democrats tend to trust the news media more than Republicans and independents. Uh, but it is rising, and the idea that um, all across political affiliations, uh, people are holding more and more unfavorable views and thinking that that we, which I still consider myself, I was a reporter for the LA Times for many years, that we have an intention to deceive is, is really bad. Um, it's just a really bad perception, and I think it partially comes from our divided media, 
but young people are showing this too. So um, I think the media need to do a better job of showing their work, as we used to say in math problems. Does some of this come from the fact that for many, many years now, longer than people probably realize, there was uh, one segment of the political divide that spent a lot more time than the other in telling you don't trust the media because the media was covering them and reporting on them, especially uh, going back to presidents like uh, Nixon who was involved in some wrongdoing and didn't want you to trust the media because they would report on that. So their way of fighting back was to get their followers and their supporters to distrust the media so they would believe them. Is this just these chickens coming home to roost? I I think it is to some degree. Uh, Roger Ailes started it with Fox News. And it's been a drumbeat that only we are there for you. Uh, Guess who that sounds like? Donald Trump uh, attacking the messenger has a long history. But I think what's what's bad now or worse now is that you have politicians saying, you know, you can't believe anything you read. And when you can't believe anything you read uh, and you're listening to a network that tells you that all the time, day in and day out, which Fox does. And Fox is watched by people who are much more loyal only to Fox. Uh, that has been a steady drumbeat. But I will say that there is also a drumbeat on the left that that the media are not fulfilling their public interest responsibility, that they're too corporate. So um, I don't think it's equal in terms of perception from everything that I've read and studied in my book. But I think the idea that, that the media don't care about the impact of their work would be appalling to most people I know who work for uh, major news organizations. You know, the other thing I found uh, interesting, Jane, in this uh, survey is uh, people who were surveyed made a distinction between national news and local news. And they they tended to, to say that they trust local news more than they do national. And the irony there is so many local news organizations across the country, as you know, have in the past few years lost employees. There's been an enormous contraction in the local news industry. Newspapers have closed left and right. So it's interesting that at a time when they say, according to this survey, that they have more trust in local news than the national uh, news operations, they're losing those very local reporters that they say they trust. Boy, you you pointed out one of the great ironies, and it's been true for a long time in all of these surveys. Local news is more trusted. And the the fact is that reporters are being let go. Uh, There's incredible consolidation, incredible um, concentration of ownership, and a lot of local stations... um, don't really even cover the government very much. And and when you have these news deserts, um, guess what? There's also more mistrust of government and less involvement. I mean, I think this also gets to mistrust of politicians. But you're absolutely right in my view about local news. I don't know if it's because anchors and community engagement, you know, community drives and things that TV stations do. Maybe there's a sense that you know, you you hate the news, but you like your local politician. You hate, you know, you hate uh, politics, but you're there uh, and you want to see this anchor and they're telling you they're there for you. I, I think that news media need to do a better job, although it would mean stepping more into explaining themselves um, than people are willing. Um, but of saying this story, you know, has value. I mean, one of the things during covid Uh, And during a lot of misinformation, trust in the media went up. Uh, People saw the value proposition, if you will, for what for what was being done. Even people who were opposed 
to a lot of what they saw in the media. Is there a, a danger of overreaction on the part of uh, media trying to wade into this divide and say, hey, we're going to bring both sides together? And they wind up watering down the information to appeal to both sides. You know, there's a famous joke, a famous meme about uh, you know, one person saying the sun is hot. And the other person says the sun is cold. And the anchor says, well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh uh, we don't we don't want to go that route, but is that a danger? And if that's the danger, then what would be the proper response of media to kind of heal this divide? Well, you know, I tell my students, show, don't tell. And I also tell them we're not stenographers. We're verifiers. These are kind of things I go by. I think trying to false falsely make equivalent, you know, that 97% of scientists think there's climate change and 3% of climate deniers years ago were set, were on and being treated equally. I think that's a mistake. But I think facts and talking about the facts and presenting them um, is, is, you know, the, the, head, the new head of CNN is talking about backing them away from so much opinion. I mean, the problem is opinion sells. <laughs> you know, uh, <Yeah. laughs> outrage is gets gets ratings and viewers. I mean, I believe that people do want the media to do their job, which is to play a role as the watchdog in the democracy. How corny is that? But <laughs> but it's true. And you and people, when they see that and see the value of some of the reporting that's been done, um, I I think that we can't have just two sides and one one set of facts for two different. I mean, that's what we're trying desperately to deal with. And people are also overwhelmed. I think that's the other thing from the right. survey. Right. People are saying, oh, my God, I don't know what to believe. Right. And then they're not just talking about the L.A. Times and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. They're swamped with all kinds of stuff that's in something of a swamp. And constant notification from your phones and your social media, too, as well. Uh, Jane, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Jane Hall, professor in the School of Communication at American University. If you have uh, your kid or kids in the car next to you at home, this is the uh, disclaimer. Maybe turn this down or listen to the podcast version of the show later. Okay, warning is out of the way because mm-hmm. we we are now going to talk about sex. We have been leading you on the whole hour, and now we're going to seal the deal. A guest essay by the New York Times explains that Americans are not having enough sex, and that's bad. Here to explain is Magdalene uh, Taylor, author of the essay. She's a sex and culture writer and author of the newsletter. Many such cases. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. So just right off the bat, why is it so bad that we're not having enough sex? And now I already feel I agree with you, but why uh, why health-wise is it so bad? Well, so I think that the uh, decline in sex, it mirrors a decline in friendships, a decline in relationships, marriages, uh, growing a family, it's its all a sign of an overwhelming cultural isolation. Um, sex is really only just one part of that, but I think that it's um, a pretty crucial part of it and one that gets people talking and gets them thinking about uh, the state of loneliness right now. You know, and in in reading your your essay, you of course point out that that part of the issue, the pandemic, clearly affected a lot of people, and it made people more isolated, and it it made people sometimes, I think, even more paranoid about having relations, close relations with other uh, people. But you also pointed out that this precedes the pandemic, this trend, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Uh, the The decline in sex was actually most dramatic uh, prior to the pandemic. 
and why? Well, you know, there, there's a lot of speculation there. I actually don't I don't have one concrete answer. Um, I do think that uh, social media um, time spent on our phones has kind of come to replace a lot of different types of um, in-person interactions. Um, and if we look at the dates of, of when when this decline started to occur, it it is uh, kind of in line with an iPhone becoming a much more ubiquitous everyday object, uh, for example. Now, uh, why would that be? Is that uh, people uh, sexting rather than actually having sex or or, or looking at uh, pictures? They're watching porn. That's yeah. what they're doing, right? I didn't want to say porn. Cause, but that's what they're doing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that it's uh, definitely one plausible theory that um, you can, you can kind of watch porn um, on your phone anytime and nearly anywhere uh, unfortunately um and yeah it's uh it's a lot easier to have your everyday interactions whether they be erotic or totally platonic uh just through your phone um but unfortunately it doesn't replace the real thing I i'm curious if if you know or if there's any evidence that this is uh, uniquely an american phenomenon or is it something that we see in other countries, you know, this country, we're so squeamish about even talking about sex. You know, we were kind of half joking at the beginning of this segment about, you know, giving warnings to parents. If your kid's in the car, make sure they don't hear this. You don't have that in a lot of other countries where, where they're not that reluctant to have discussions, even with youngsters, about sex. Yeah, I, I don't have the data uh, to support that entirely, but I do think that this is... Uh, at, at least a general trend that we can see in much of the Western world. Um, and, you know, I know at least just from my own experience as a writer, um, I've spoken to a lot of young men throughout Europe, for example, who very much report uh, many of the same feelings uh, as, as American young men. Um, I think that there is a, uh, a cultural isolation that's uh, happening worldwide, at least in various pockets. Now, we're talking about lack of sex being bad for us and bad for us culturally. Uh, but what kind of sex are we talking about? And by that, I mean, you know, some people have sex just for the sex. Other people are having sex for the, the connection and the, the bonding with someone. Uh, does, uh, you know, you talk about the people who have just empty sex and they, they uh, basically are sex addicts and they have a relationship every other night. Right. Um, it is possible for sex to contribute to one's sense of loneliness and isolation, you know, particularly with, with what you said of maybe meaningless sex, um, sex where you're not, you're not forming um, a connection and, and doing that on, on a regular basis. It is possible for that to make somebody feel even lonelier um, than if they weren't having any sex at all. Um, but I do think it's important that this, the type of sex that we're talking about can really, it, it can look completely different from person to person. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, traditional intercourse even as as we know it. Um, but I, I do think that the, the core element here is that you are forming a bond with another person, whether that's, you know, your spouse of, of many years or somebody that you have a more casual relationship with. Um, but it, it, at the end of the day, it is still about um, having a human interaction. You know, and what you said earlier about, you know, there seems to be a correlation between the uh, you know invention of the iPhone, all smartphones, I suppose, and, and the ubiquity of 
social media and the decline in sex. So is the solution, and I don't know how one would implement that, but is the solution to kind of cut back significantly on what we do uh, online and, and our interaction with social media, giving us more time to do all the other stuff? Yeah, you know, I think that for me personally, what I see as one of the better methods of, of getting out of this state that we're currently in is just trying to make more of an effort to have in-person uh, interactions. Um, again, platonic or otherwise. Um, I think that it's a lot of us do need to make a bit more of a conscious effort to spend less time on our phones and to actually spend time with the people around us. All right. There you have it. Uh, put your phone down and get it on. Magdalene Taylor, author of an essay that says Americans are not having enough sex. She's a sex and culture writer and author of the newsletter, Many Such Cases. Well, you know, it, it is interesting that, that uh, and I do think a lot of it is, as we spoke with her, that when you have these phones, and we've done stories about this, that, mm-hmm. that a lot of people are, you know, they spend their time on the phone or at home watching pornography. Uh, and it's a substitute for actual Human to human sex. You mean you can see pornography on a, a phone on the internet? Yeah. Here, you want to take a look? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's it for in depth. We'll be back tomorrow. Show me that again.